Welcome, Legionaries, to episode four of Legion Cast, Flight of the Eisenstein by James Swallow. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is Legionary Brandinius. Welcome, my Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, Death Shroud Terminators. Welcome to Legion Cast. Hell yeah. So, I want to talk about my hobby table because I'm super excited about it. I actually slung some paint last week. Yeah, let's get into it. I want to hear all about your paint. Yes, holy cow. I'm super happy with how they turned out. So I'm painting some good old-fashioned blueberries, which I used to roast 40k players for playing Ultramarines because it's like you don't have a brain cell if you are painting the box art. Like, you're neglecting half of the hobby. I take all that back. I semi-sincerely apologize for some of the roasting I've done in the past. You don't have to apologize because the box art for Heresy is Sons of Horus, and those guys are the worst. So I'd say that's my get-out-of-jail-free card. But the 30k Ultramarines compared to the 40k Ultramarines are a whole different animal. To me, they're a thousand times cooler. So what I'm doing is a base coat of the McCrag Blue, uh, just the the, uh, Citadel Rattlecam, and then I'm stippling with lighter blue, and then doing the blue wash and then edge highlighting just a little bit of that lighter blue again. And it's looking awesome. I'm really liking how they turned out and I'm doing black bullet guns, red eyes, red crests, all that stuff. It's super cool. They're looking great. And actually this afternoon I had a lot of success. It's taken me three tries, but on my third try, I think I finally got it. I told you I was doing those um, translucent uh, polymer bases I got like a whole run of those done today that look awesome. I need to take some pictures and throw them up on social media because you're going to think they look awesome. They look just like Marble Floor. I was, yeah, uh, put show, those on show, the Twitter at LegionCast18. That Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Plug the LegionCast18 Twitter, but not the Instagram. I think I'm going to delete that because they're all about posting reels now and I can't stand that shit. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Uh, anyway. Brandon, what's on your table? What's on my hobby table? This guy right here. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. The Kratos? Uh, working, on, working on the Kratos tank tonight while we record. Uh, this is going to be... I, I, I want to get him finished tonight because after tonight, he's got to go to the side. Uh, because I am all Middle Earth right now. Uh, nice. My I have started participating in a Battle Companies League uh, around here. And... I played a three games for my for my league this past week. Tons of fun. Had a blast doing it. But a bunch of my guys got promoted, so I have to paint new models with horses <laughs> and extra swords. All of that stuff. Great modeling opportunities. Lots of fun. Awesome. I am really enjoying this Battle Company's rule set. Um, I think the Middle Earth rule set, like the Heresy rule set, is some of the best that. Um, that GW has to offer, um, which kind of leads me into my next talking point here, which is some of the not best rule set that GW has to offer, which is presently 40k. And there's been some controversy this week with squats. Yeah, so I think right out of the gate, uh, hot take, but the codex creep is never going away. Like the newest codex is always going to be like the biggest and best, right? They're never, they're just, they're never going to get around that. Well, let's add some context here for some folks who are not familiar, but you know, 
Games Workshop just recently re-released uh, um, Squats, which is, is dwarves in space, for, for those who are unfamiliar. Um, they are so popular. There is a term in, in the community called getting squatted, because they were an army that existed and then ceased. And so when things ceased to exist, they were called getting squat. It was called getting squatted. But they're back now. And I think that's really excited. You're a dwarf guy. Yeah. I'm a dwarf guy. We're both sitting here rocking. Well, I'm rocking a luxurious beard. There's something on your face. Nobody knows what's going on there. Um, but we were both really excited for squats coming out. You're buying in. Um, yeah. I don't really play 40k anymore. I just do 30k. So I, I was not particularly interested in buying in, but really excited that they're back. And before the book even comes out, they're having to get banned from tournaments and GW is having to release FAQs within a week of this thing dropping. Uh, it's a huge problem. And I, I'm just I'm really frustrated because this some people talk about how like, well, at least they got on this right away. But this has been a trend. This has not been right. the this is not some exception to the norm. Yeah, I, it's. and So I was talking to uh, I heard from a guy in one of the. Um, it's like a discord or gilded server. I can't remember where I was talking to him about this. And he basically told me that when GW play tests, their new codex, they're play testing it against like the previous codex. So they're not getting like, it's not very granular what they need to be doing. I, I guess f from my perspective, what they should be doing is like only play testing against like Eldar Tau and orcs. And then if you're steamrolling those, they either need an update or you need to roll something back in what you're playtesting. Because if you're just if you're just playtesting in Space Marines all the time, it's uh, you, you're never going to have. It's not going to be very consistent. You're just going to be like, oh well, they beat Space Marines. Clearly, they're going to be good. Yeah, we you know we don't play competitive 40k. Um, neither of us do. I do play competitive Age of Sigmar, um, where they do not have this problem which is what makes it so frustrating to see in the 40k community because they have rules teams here who have a very hot uh, release cycle like Age of Sigmar and 40k that don't have this problem. Right. Uh, I it, It's just frustrating to me because every book that we've seen, Eldar, Tyranids, now Squats, they're coming out and they're going to these tournaments and winning 70% of the time. And some people want to come back and, and say, well, that's just competitive play, and that's not the majority of the hobby. Well, I'll tell you what is the majority of the hobby. When you get your brand new squat army, and you get it all painted up, and you've spent all that time and work on it, and you show up to your friendly local game store, and nobody will play you because your army is broken as fuck through no fault of your own, that's bullshit. Yeah, and it's it's not, to me, the hobby is experience had, not victories won. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And you can you can say that, oh, well, that's on the, the fault of your, the players at your, your game store of they won't play you even though you have this army. But I don't think it's unfair. Well, so something that comes to mind is like 10, 10 or 12 years ago, maybe it was just 10 years ago. It's been a while. But um, I used to be a War Machine Hordes guy. And I went to a War Machine Hordes tournament, and I took uh, the pig guys, the the Pharaoh, and uh, Lord Carver. Oh God, we're, this is a whole tangent here, but I swear to God, it's going to come back around. Um, 
I took this, back in the day you had these tier lists where you could get some really broken combos and Lord Carver could do some really interesting stuff with the Pharaoh Brigands. Anyway, I was playing against this guy running Cawdor and he was running all of the, um, the, the Cawdor power armor and I tabled him in a couple of turns and he couldn't fucking believe it because the dumbass pigmen wiped him off the board. And it was almost no fun because of how salty this dude got. So even having a broken army or like having an army that just does well can really kill it for your opponent. And like for me anyway, like I didn't feel bad for the guy. I just kind of got frustrated because he was like pouting the whole time, but it was really frustrating not to have good engagement while you're playing the game. Right. Yeah. Those of us who go to these tournaments, you know, I'm, I am far from, I go to a lot of age of Sigmar tournaments. I am far from the podium. I'm a three, two player. Um, which, as someone like that, it is not fun for me to curb stomp my opponent. It is equally as unfun to be curb stomped. And getting away from the tournament scene, you you don't want to show up. I, I think it's even worse when you're not playing a tournament scene because you might, if you're a tournament hardcore player, you might be throwing, you might have painted some guys, but you might be just throwing them on the army or throwing them on the table going, this is competitive, so I'm going to bring it. But if, if you're not playing that way and you're, you know, you're playing more of the casual, like even the narrative sense of like, I've spent a lot of time painting up my guys. They have names. I love that shit. People who like name their models, you guys are the heart of the hobby in my opinion. But that sucks when your beautifully painted army that you have spent so much time painstakingly working on just gets curb stomped through no fault of yours or your opponents. It's not their fault either. They just like if they just liked this army, i.e. squats, and it, it's not their fault that the rules are written the way that they are. Yeah, definitely. I can see how it's um, it's really getting frustrating for. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the guys that are playing the games, I, I'm not super. Uh, uh, how do I say it? Like I I do like to play games, but I far more enjoy the the modeling part of the hobby itself. I'm uh, just more inclined towards that that aspect. But that being said, I still have fun rolling dice. But it, it like exactly like you're saying, it's really frustrating to put a lot of time and effort into something just to have it you know, show up on the tabletop and be subpar due to the, the writing that we have, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I'm much more, you're much more on the painting side of things, and that's where you get your enjoyment of the hobby. I am the rolling dice guy. I love getting these dudes out on the table. I love the tactical aspects of, of thinking about things um, and, and the dice, dice be damned because they screw me every time. But <laughs> They've won you several games your dice have won me more games than mine have so yeah they've won they've won you more games than they've won me but (laughs) (laughs) the point is though that like i don't there's no fun in setting my models up like here perfect example friend of the show of ours paul um who who lives down here with me we played a lot of 40k you know especially like early eighth edition to uh to mid eighth and we were playing Imperial Fist versus Iron Warriors, and what we found is that our games were lining up, and they were entirely decided on who won the priority die roll. So we were just sitting there like, why are we spending all of this time setting up our table, 
setting up our models, driving across town to meet each other for one die roll. So we stop playing. And that that's what's going to happen. That all that's going to happen is you're just going to keep pushing people to other game systems. It's really frustrating to me that the my in in my opinion, hot take here, the best game systems that Game Work Games Workshop produces are the ones that they put out and forget about. Adeptus Titanicus is great because there's no rules creep. There are very few FAQs. My only beef or my only gripe about it was that that the first rulebook or the the rulebook that they put out was not like written super well. Like it's not organized very well is what I mean. Like it's it's pretty concise, but like it's not very clean. It could have been uh, trimmed up a little bit, but. Um, Adeptus Titanicus is one of the great rule sets. I think Horus Heresy is great right now. And the, the awesome part about that is that the Liber, uh, the Liber Astartes and the Liber Hereticus came out at the exact same time. And so there's, you know, they, they had to have been playtested against once, once, uh, against each other so that there's good balance in the game. And I think that we're seeing a lot of that. I mean, some legions, uh, have their, um, have their cheese and it, it definitely showed against you when you were playing against alpha legion but um i want you to talk about that later on but um it's uh i think that those instances are going to get sorted out because you know each legion is going to have their cheese you know i, I don't think we're going to see the disparity in horus heresy that we've that we're seeing in 40k right now yeah absolutely and you know perfect example was is that game i played against alpha legion um i had taken a list that really synergized on a lot of characters doing a lot of things to buff units and i got absolutely eviscerated by alpha legion snipers but i can come back tomorrow and counterplay that to an extent i can take a list where i'm saying okay i need to i i put too much into characters to help them carry carry my day and they couldn't do it uh, this this was a, a bad, bad matchup for them. But I can take that into mind next time. I'm learning from my next game. So I can I can counterplay that. What I can't do is counterplay a list from a book that came out five minutes ago and absolutely soul crushes me on every level. That's it's so frustrating because that's not it's just not fun for anybody. It, it's upsetting for the squats players who bought this army some of these guys have been waiting for 20 years for this army to come out and they can't play anyone right so that's that's kind of my thing is like i i was eyeballing this um i was eyeballing this this whole model line since the minute they got um they could gw kind of trolled us on that one because they did that teaser trailer on April 1st. So we all thought it was an April Fool's joke. And there were some really salty guys in the chat um, talking about, you know, how this is bullshit and they better give us our space dwarves. Uh, and then they actually did it. And now they're here. But, you know, a lot of these guys are going to be like, oh, you know, you just were going after the broken codex. And, you know, you're just, you know, you're not a real fanboy. You were just, uh, you're just going for the next big thing, right? You just wanted a broken army. And I, I, I can't stand that attitude. And, uh, some of us just like the models. I think they look awesome. I really like the the big uh, land fortress. I know you said it looked kind of dorky, but I think it looks awesome. Hey, it's just not my aesthetic, which is totally fine. There are plenty of things in this range that are my aesthetic. Right on. Yeah, so, you know, if 
any of you out there are collecting squats, if you're getting ready to play some games, just keep it friendly and hopefully your opponent will do the same thing. We can't control other players. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't get too hostile out there towards squat guys and we'll just have to see. I, I don't know how I feel about GW immediately bending the knee and uh, rolling or rolling this back. I talking to some of the Longbeards, they've never seen anything like this happen. GW has never dropped the nerf hammer that fast. Yeah, this is something um, that I want to talk about. Uh, you and I, we watched a video um, about someone talking about exactly this, where his argument was essentially they should not be doing this. They should not be nerfing. That the play community should just adapt. Um, and, and to an extent, that's true. And he mentioned like things like old school, like 5th edition Grey Knights, or uh, I can't remember some of the other things that were that were mentioned. 2nd uh, um, and 3rd edition Eldar. Yeah, yeah. So he's, um, he's been in the hobby for a long time. Yeah, exactly. But my counterpoint to that would be we are not seeing a codex cycle like we are seeing now. We were not seeing that back then. It was, you might have to wait 10 years for your next codex to come out. And by the time that cycle is done, your army's dog shit. It doesn't matter. Codex creep is always going to exist. But when you are on a furious edition cycle like this is, or a furious codex cycle, it's things cannot come out at this rate and crush everyone's souls like this. It's just not fair. It's not Mm -hmm. right. There, there needs to be more work on the playtesting department, which I know that they just shit-canned a bunch of their playtesters for rules leaks, which, yeah, I get it. You, your playtesters are leaking rules. you got to get rid of them. But you got to figure something else out. It can't just be we're not going to playtest. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I completely agree with that. The, the leaks have been... Gosh, it, leaks are going to happen, and it, it is harmful to the product. And I, I, I don't think I would do it if, if I was a playtester. But, I mean, I think, I imagine it would be easy to talk about with the wrong person who would then leak that information out there. So that's a, that's a tricky one for them, and I hope they get it figured out. But the way they're handling it right now is uh, pretty abysmal. Yeah, and you know what? Frankly, if, if leaks are happening, I don't care. I do not care. Um, that's not an excuse to completely shut down your playtesting department. Right. Um, you can fire everybody there and rebuild it from the ground up, but you have got to play test. And we've heard, we've heard this, and this is the most fucking piss me off line that anyone will ever feed me, which is that oh, they're a model company, they're not a game company. Bullshit. bullshit. That's the biggest load of fucking bullshit I have ever heard. Yep. There are plenty right. of people who just buy the models to paint them and put them on the shelf, and that's great. And you are welcome here, and we're happy to have you. But this is a fucking game company, and so they need to make rule sets that work for a fucking game. Yeah, and it's 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 been a while since they've ever been able to say that. It's been at least twenty years because not only have they been making models and rule sets, uh, artwork and uh literature they have literally been writing for tw- upwards of 20 years it's been what they're they're at their 35 year anniversary this year something like that yeah it, it's it's been a hot minute they've had 30 years to figure this out not to get too hostile there at the end but i mean 
how much longer are people going to ride this rodeo? I mean, how much longer is it before? I know uh, Privateer Press just announced their Mark IV rule set. And going back to that, back in sex, second edition, they had as much traction as Games Workshop did. And thir- third edition ruined that because they really leaned into the com- competitive playtesting. And I watched that happen in real time. I was there for that. And it was horrific to see because there was a lot of fun being had in that community, but they took a nosedive and then GW ended up coming back on top, coming out on top because um, Privateer Press had, had given them such a run for their money. But uh, I, I don't know if this Mark IV rule set's going to bring back any enthusiasm to the hobby. I think they, they leaned. I know, I know that video that we watched really talked about how Privateer Press really leaned into the competitive element and that really ruined the enthusiasm for the hobby. And um, like the, the guy in that video said, we don't want to um, uh, don't want to encourage that same kind of downfall. Oh, yeah, and, I want to I I plug that dude's channel because we, we talked a lot about that video. Yeah, so Gor- um, Gorilla Miniatures Games, he's a great YouTube channel. Um, don't know him personally at all. Uh, just watch a lot of his content. Uh, check him out. Check him out on yeah. YouTube. Yeah, he did. He did a pretty concise video on why GW shouldn't be apologizing for this rule set, which I I agree with. I just want their quality control for the codexes to be a lot tighter. Yeah, he hit a point in the end there where he said, "Oh, it doesn't matter because something's going to come along in two months, and it's going to blow squats out of the water." And to to me, I was like that. That's the root of the problem, right? I don't. That's that's the only part of that video I didn't agree with because the codex creep has got to be addressed. So that this, I I know that we kind of caught a break from that when uh, Matt Ward left, but um, uh, it's it's really come back. And I know they G, GW put out that um that video apologizing about it and being like, uh, it's the the CEO's favorite army and it was his first rule set. So we're sorry about it, but now we'll fix it. Well, that's not really what the players want. I mean, we just want, you know, a reliable rule set we can buy once and then not have to worry about amending a week later. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, that's actually a really good point um, to, to add on to this. I don't want to drag this rant out too much longer because we've got a whole excellent book to talk about. Uh, but, you know, I bought, uh, you can actually see it because I moved my bookshelf this past week, but I bought the new Chaos Space Marine Codex uh, oh. for my very large, you are aware of, Iron Warriors collection for 40k. Again, I don't play a lot of 40k, but I would like to have the updated rule set so that when my friends say, hey, let's crack out 40k, we can play that. My Iron Warriors were out of date before the book came out. Oof. They had already had an errata before the book came out. This, this cannot work. <sighs> this is Damn. not acceptable. What is the point of me buying a book that is not that is out of date before it hits the shelf? And again, AOS does not have this problem. So you have a rules team that knows how to fix this. Pick up the phone or stick your head up above the cubicle. I have no idea how their offices are laid out. Figure this out. My um my number one reason for not investing in uh chaos space marines because you know i like chaos space marines i've got um i've got like just a bunch of regular loyalist dudes i I made my own chapter of space marines and i really love painting them they're they're awesome but i really want to get into one of the chaos legions and the only thing stopping me from doing it is that 
Chaos Space Marines did not get Legion supplements the way Loyalist Space Marines got chapter supplements. That is the biggest load of horse shit in the 40k hobby. It's like one of the the biggest story-driving factions in the entire universe, and GW can't be bothered to give them a little bit of a, a little bit of a better rule set. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. So I think the moral of this story is GW have a dressing down of your 40k rules team, and then also look at your 30k rules team and your Middle Earth rules team. And don't talk to them because they're doing everything right. <laughs> leave them yeah, alone. <laughs> leave them alone. We don't want you anywhere near them. Yeah. Stay the fuck out of their office. And Titanicus. Don't touch oh, Titanicus. Yeah, don't, it's amazing. Don't even bother. Don't fix. I know I just complained about the rule set or the, the rule book like being poorly written. Leave it the fuck alone because I know if you touch it, you're probably going to fuck it up. It was poorly written, but we've already figured it out. Just yeah, leave it alone. It's it's fine. It's fine. We figured it out. It's fine. All right. Minute. All right. Okay, so end of that. The hobby section was great. We got it all out of our system. This is going to um, be a longer podcast, folks. I'm sorry. Okay, oh I'm, I'm not really. I'm in. not really sorry, but well, we're half hour in because you messed up the intro four times. Yeah, uh, put those on the end or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're going to take a short break and then we'll get into book four of the Horus Heresy: Flight of the Eisenstein. Welcome to Legion Cast. Oh fuck! <laughs> Start over. Okay, well, I'll just hit it in editing. Okay. Welcome, Legionaries, to fuck. Welcome, Do you Legionaries. Need to stop. <laughs> yes, just God, give me that. <laughs> fuck. Save those edits and put them at the end. At the end, and do like a. Oh, like we're a still recording. Don't worry. Okay. everyone hope you enjoyed the break and didn't uh get put off by our horrible ranting about terrible rule sets but we there's are now so here much to more talk... we could have gotten to Ugh, God, just yeah, saying we we left out a lot but now we're here to talk about the meat of the podcast book four flight of the eisenstein and it's a pretty knockdown drag out kind of kick in the teeth book if you liked uh, if you ever watched Battlestar Galactica and enjoyed getting kicked in the nuts every week, you're in for a treat. So the story starts off aboard the Death Guard flagship. And right off the bat, we're introduced to basically a whole new cast of characters. There are only a couple of recurring faces. Um, I think maybe five in total. And two of them are kind of, or one or two of them are like, just they're shuffled right along. We don't start off right away. Uh, there's a little bit of buildup. So the uh, Death Guard fleet is in translation to a nav point where some uh, pesky Xenos raiders 
have been kind of um, not really pirating. They've just been stealing natural resources from uninhabited planets within Imperial territory. So these aliens, the Yorgle, who aren't around anymore, I wonder what happened to them. The Yorgle have been, um, they're, they're this kind of ship-bound species. Um, they're like... Uh, Everybody loves a good casual genocide every so often. Just another day in 40k. So the Yorgle are these, uh, these ship-bound aliens that are kind of a mix between a spider and a bat. That's the best way to explain it. Anyway, um, the Death Guard Legion, and there's a fair few of them. It's it's the bulk of the Legion. It's not all of them, but it's it's the fair. It's the 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 lion's share anyway. Yeah the the ship that uh, we're starting out on is the Endurance, which right. is the think of the vengeful spirit for the Sons of Horus. This is that for the Death Guard. This is Mortarian's flagship, even if he's not there. It's another Gloriana-class vessel, and the the trick with them is... There's a short story somewhere that explains only 20 were made. There was supposed to be one for each Primarch. Um, It's kind of weird that Reboot Gilliman had two. And then... um, Gee, I wonder what what happened there. Yeah, He also had the largest Legion, inexplicably. Super weird. Anyway... um, so the Endurance, with along with uh, the rest of the Death Guard fleet, are in translation to exterminate these pesky Xenos. And we get some uh, perspective of Nathaniel Garrow and his uh, adjutant, or um, what do they call it, a house call? His it's, house it's carl. House carl. A house carl is, is like a squire. Okay, so this is this is kind of like his um his it, well like Brandon said uh, a squire or page that is kind of his go getter and he helps him put on his armor he hands him his sword stuff like that and his name is Caleb and um Caleb's kind of curious right off the, or he, there are a couple of curious things about him right off the bat he's uh the way he talks it um since we've been exposed to the Lacticio Divinitatis before. We kind of get the feeling that maybe he's an emperor worshiper right off the bat, and then um, Nathaniel Garrow um, is on his way to a summons that it's basically like the big briefing. And when he gets there, there is um, a buddy captain of his, which he's he's only got a couple of scenes. I forget his name. Olus um, Temeter. Okay, Temeter. He's a he's a fellow Terran born, just like um, Garrow. Garrow, which we get a sense of this early on of this conflict between uh, the sons of Barbarus, which is Mortarian's home world, the Primarch of the the Death Guard, and the original Legionnaires from Terra. Now every Legion has this issue um, to an extent, but it's, it's more pronounced in some than others. It's very pronounced in the Death Guard, we see. It's very pronounced in the Dark Angels, the First Legion. We'll see that in Book 6. Um, but some of the Legions really don't have a problem with this, like uh, the Ultramarines, for example. The the World Eaters don't even notice, because if the any of the Terranborn ones are still alive, they don't notice because the World Eaters basically recruit from a dozen different worlds. So they're a very mixed legion. Um, yeah, so it, the point being, it's more pronounced in some legions than others, this kind of failure to mesh, right. if you will. So 
Captain Temeter and Captain Garrow are buddy buddy at this little um, this little summons, and then Callis, Captain First Captain Callus Typhon, and is it Second Captain Igne, Igneous, uh, Ignatius Grugor? Ignatius Grugor. Real quick, uh, most of you, if you have are not familiar with 40k. Uh, aren't gonna understand this, but I'm gonna say this about Callus Typhon. Fuck that guy. Oof, coming in kind of hot, hot there. Okay. Hot take. Fuck that guy. Well, he's still <laughs> around in 40k, so spoiler alert. I've said it. I don't regret it. Right. So, what did Typhon do to piss you off so much? We'll get. We'll get there. Okay. In about 50 books, we'll get there. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so, um. First Captain Typhon, second Captain Grulgor, their buddy buddy, and then Temeter and Garo are buddy buddy because Terran Terran, Barbarin Barbarin. And there's a little bit of tension between them, the these two groups. As Brandon said, the it's the uh, the difference in a recruitment world. Well, in uh, before this meeting starts, um, Garo notices two Death Shroud Terminators standing in the back of the room. And so the lore goes, they can never stray more than like 47 paces away from the Primarch, except no one sees the Primarch in the room. It's 49. Um, the multiples of seven um, are very apparent, and they're important. Right. Okay. Keep that. Keep that. I missed that, so keep that in mind. Um, 14th so they... Legion, 49 paces, seven companies. That's all important. During this meeting, they, 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 everybody is a little nervous because they, they know that Mortarion is close, but they don't know where he is. And he's kind of this enigmatic figure the whole time. And, and out of nowhere, he kind of, Mortarion kind of materializes out of the shadows and he starts this briefing. And he talks about this uh, Yorgali bottle ship, that it's like a big colony vessel, basically. And um, they're dividing up um, how the companies are going to take the... Uh, take this bottle ship and you know certain fleet elements are going to go knock out the picket ships and all the smaller vessels and then uh captain grulgor is supposed to take the engine room right um i don't exactly remember exactly who's taking what what really matters is that garrow is taking this big um kind of hatchery space yeah the hatchery so uh, I'm getting kind of in the weeds here. It's not that important. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the the boarding goes off basically without a hitch. Um, the Death Guard. Uh, are... No, it goes off with a hitch. They board into a chemical lake on accident. Well, okay. So rolling but back a little bit, it's, it's not it's a, a hitch. Good, to it, the it is a. It's not a hitch. It's a very good and well written fight scene um, that I encourage you if you have not read the book, go read it. Um, it's a good action scene. Very well done. So, uh, but what's more important is that they're conducting this in joint operation with the Sisters of Silence, who we meet for the very first time. Now, the Sisters of Silence are a order um, created by the Emperor to hunt down psychers. Uh, that is their entire rule. Since the Emperor's ruling in Nikea, um, something that we will actually see later in this series, um, we'll see a flashbacks to that, but that essentially psychers outside of navigators and astropaths are illegal in the imperium uh, they are not allowed to practice their craft so the silent sisterhood 
rides around in the black ships, as they're called, picking up witches and doing what any good imperial citizen would do with witches, which is burn them. Um, they're Sometimes. very cool. They're very interesting. Um, they're all untouchables, which means they have no presence in the warp. It doesn't so, really hit on untouchables in this series, but untouchables are a super cool concept. So the um, the thing about an, an untouchable, like Brennan said, they don't have a presence in the warp, but they are the polar opposite of a psychic. So where a psychic is a burning beacon in the warp, where any warp entity can can see them, basically, the, the blank or untouchable... Um, or a psychic null, as they call them, are the exact opposite. They're completely unknown to the warp. And that being said, uh, like if you can get enough of these untouchables in the same place, or if you get one that is powerful enough, I'm not really sure how that scales, but they can actually shut down psychic powers around them. So the sisters, uh, the silent sisters are all female blanks that take a vow of silence and their whole life is hunting psychics. Now, uh, a squad of them, led by um, Oblivion Knight Amandira Kendall, who I think is awesome. She is such a badass. Yeah, she's really cool. Now, they're tasked with this joint operation, and this the missive for this operation came directly from Terra, and it came directly from Malkador the Sigilite, who is the like second-in-command on Terra. So it's Emperor, Malkador, and then it's the Council of Terra. Yeah, so if you think of uh, Malkador the Sigilite is the regent of Terra, which means he's in command of the throne world. So if the Emperor is in charge of the entire Imperium, think of this guy as, if you have the Emperor of Rome, then you have the Mayor of Rome. If, if Here, let, let's talk modern politics real quick. You have the President of the United States who lives in Washington, D.C., the mayor of Washington, D.C. is also on that national level uh, because this is the seat of power for the federal government. That is kind of what Malkador is. He's the second in command of the entire Imperium. His word carries a lot of weight. In fact, this entire mission is uh, dictate from Malkador the Sigilite. Right. So long story short... It's a really important task. And Mortarian mentions that because when they when they land on the bottle ship, when they board, somebody says, Oh, this is a pretty, pretty simple fight for legionaries. You know, why did they task us to this? And Mortarian catches it and he's like, No, this is really important because dad said I had to, dad said I had to do it. Yeah, it's um it's a big deal. Um again, really good action scene, a lot of good fights. Garrow ends up saving um, Oblivion Knight Kendall. Um, they press on. He gets to see the Primarch in action. One of the things that, you know, they spend a lot of time describing what that looks like. Really well written, in my opinion. There's there's a phrase I like to use for Warhammer books called bolter porn, and this is not it. So he, uh, Garrow ends up moving on to his objective, which is the hatchery. He, uh, so Garrow moves on to, to his objective, which is, is the hatchery. I mean, he sees a lot of his Legion brothers getting uh, hit by you know, this this giant Yorgali Xenos. Um, they end up taking it on, they fight it, and he discovers it's actually protecting this deformed, like, conjoined twin-type-looking uh, creature. And it turns out that this is a Psyker. 
um, who tells him that, uh, you know, he's so certain that the Death Guard are right, um, but the Psyker has foreseen their end, and all, you know, blah, 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 you guys are wrong, um, turn back from this, and Garrow is like, nope, Imperial Truth, fuck you. So, um, to rewind that fight a little bit, the, um, this conjoined twin thing, um, part of it is like this giant bodyguard construct. It's like this big bulky mutant. It's got a ton of cybernetics on it. Um, it catches Garrow in a bear hug and almost crushes him to death, but something really significant happens at this point. Because right as Garrow is about to be crushed to death and die, he starts to remember Terra and crusading, you know, at the heels of the Emperor. And, you know, how glorious it was and, you know, the mighty truth that they had, you know, launched into the stars to spread. And he is suddenly empowered with this second wave of vigor and he's able to bust loose of this big construct and hacks it apart with his kick-ass sword. And that's when the... Um, the psychic element of the, the conjoined twin rolls out of its like um, incubation capsule or whatever. And it starts to send him all these psychic messages, like Brandon said. And um, he, uh, before he can kill it, actually Amandira Kendall comes out of nowhere and cuts its head off and stuffs it in a chainmail sack, which I thought was pretty cool because it's like of all the advanced technologies they have at their disposal, a chainmail sack is the go-to for psycho heads. Yes. We have advanced to the 40, 30, sorry, 31st millennium. All of technology is at our disposal, and nothing has mastered the almighty bag. Yep, still the go-to. So, you know, they have a little bit of an interaction there. The Death Guard were really well suited to this fight because the the Yorgul were, uh, they breathe like um, chlorine or uh, methane or some shit. It's really nasty, but... Um, they're able to easily overcome that because the Death Guard are uniquely suited to hostile environments like that. It's kind of their whole thing. You know, they're they're uh, very, 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 very durable. So they steamroll the your your uh, Yeah, I kind of I kind of like that though about the Death Guard because one of the things that you know in reading this book initially I was a little bit worried about was. The Death Guard's tactics is just kind of advance and foot slog and just duke it out, you know, meter by bloody meter. And that's really the Iron Warriors shtick. So right, I right. love that they have something that really differentiates them. Because I love my Iron Warriors. And every Legion should have its own unique identity. Right. So that really gets showcased here. I appreciated that as well. And I think we see that again... Um, she had a couple more times later on and um, uh, kind of in passing uh, there are a couple other characters that kind of get a, a moment to shine here. Um, Decius is one of in uh, uh, Garrow's command squad. He's uh, kind of this brash young Astartes that, you know, he's always charged in with his power fist and, and, you know, cleaning clocks and all that. And then, uh, Apothecary Voyan is there. There's a, a sister of silence that loses her helmet and she can't breathe the air, but because he's there, he's able to save her. And there's a couple of uh, kind of toss away lines later on that mention all that. And so it, I think that those little scraps do a great job of kind of building the chemistry between these characters later on. Ignatius Grulgor is there. I think he teleports in with like uh, dual bolt guns and just hoses a bunch of uh, Yorgali out of the air. It's awesome. 
that is such a like they talk about the excess of it but it's right. such a fucking metal thing to think about yeah, it's just it's... some astartes with two bolters like fuck you yeah it it was some some pretty kick-ass shit and then um the venerable dreadnought uh here on foul is there he's kind of getting sworn and that's when grolgor pops in and and hoses him with the old rat-a-tat-tat um so you know the whole action goes off without a hitch um garrow it uh distinguishes himself quite a bit here um by uh combating this monstrous psychic abomination thing um and it 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 gets him noticed by the primarch and you know garrow's already got a pretty sterling reputation amongst the legion because he's such a stalwart man himself like they call him straight arrow garrow because he's so, so up and down He's respected by, you know, a lot of people. He's he's a very well-known man in the Legion. And he's distinguished himself so much with his victory that Mortarion uh, appoints him as his equerry for their next task, which is a rendezvous with the War Master at a familiar planet called Istavan. Yeah, so he we get to see this cool little ritual, um, and it's pretty short, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But basically, uh, Mortarion offers his uh, Garrow to, you know, take part in his cups, which you would think would be like a victory toast, but it's pure poison. And so it's just a cool little scene of kind of seeing what the what the Primarch's about, and we get some time here after he appoints Garrow as his equerry to really kind of get a little bit of a view of what of who mortarian is we kind of get a good insight to his character here which i really like um because you can tell there's a lot here and we haven't gotten all of it uh there's a lot more to dig up with this character he's very interesting to me and and i'll look i look forward to the rest of the series where we're going to get to kind of dig into Mortarian more. Yeah. Um, I, th- we're kind of scratching the surface with this one. Um, he's not, uh, he's not really brooding like some of the other primarchs like Korax or Pertorabo, but he's very enigmatic. Um, he's, uh, he doesn't really show a lot, but, um, you, you know, that there's really a lot of gears turning behind the, behind his eyes, so to speak. Yeah, they do a really great job of kind of that. That's hard to do, uh, but you can tell there's a lot more that's lying under the surface here that you want to dig into, and the author's just not letting you yet. And I love right. that. Yeah, yeah, it, it really, it really sets him up for more stories. Um, we'll we'll really see how those get turned out. I know he was one of the primary. He he was one of the big voices at the Council of Nikea. Um, not to spoil all of that, but he has a lot of say, or he has a big say in what transpires there. So we'll see that in another book. But uh, anyway, moving on. Um, Garo and Mortarian land aboard the Vengeful Spirit, but before they do so, they actually translate into the they translate into the Istvan system first. And Mortarian says, we're not going to board that ship because there's certain etiquettes to uh, obey. Because we're, uh, we're ranked, um, we're a greater number in the, uh, in the legions. We have to wait for the Emperor's children and the world leaders to go first. Because if we go first, it's poor manners and, you know, they'll bitch about it, basically. 
So there's there's kind of this whole hierarchy on the the etiquette basically of who gets to board the Warmaster ship first. Yeah, and and it's a great view into his character because one thing that we learned about Mortarian and that he adopts across his legion is he's not one for ceremony or for all of you know the elegance and things like that you know direct comparison here is the emperor's children who have filigreed literally everything that is around them the command bridges and such of death guard ships you know they're completely bare bones but he's very adamant about we're paying attention to this this uh you know the etiquette of this ceremony which kind of seems out of character for him but it just shows that there's more to him than meets the eye I'm not sure if it's um, I'm not sure if it's like a, a faux pas of the writing, but early on in the book they talk about how all the Death Guard ships are very Spartan, bare bones. The only like big icon on the Endurance is this big brass skull icon that's like Mortarion's personal sigil. It's like the the mark of the Death Guard, basically. And then later on in the book they go on to talk about how there are marble floors on board the Endurance, and I'm like that doesn't seem right from the the you know the previous writing but you know maybe it was just uh, when the emperor had these glorianas built that uh you know they all got that but anyway let's see so uh the emperor's children envoy lands first which we remember that was eidolon uh with saul tarvitz and lucius and then uh angron and captain karn land and then Finally, Mortarion and Garrow get to go aboard for their little meeting. When they touch down on the ship, Garrow sees a uh, a robed old man in iterator's cloaks running through the halls. Rewinding a little bit, we know that's Kirill Cinderman running to the aid of Euphrates Kila because Maggard's about to go blow her brains out. Garrow sees all this but doesn't say anything. Yeah, it's kind of cool we get to see the the things that we've already seen but from a different perspective. I, I enjoyed that as well. So let's see. Uh, Garrow gets a, um, gets a pretty, uh, a pretty good view of the going on, goings on of this, uh, this summons or this meeting. And we've already seen this perspective. It's Horace going over the, the battle plan of Istvan and uh, tasking the death guard to take uh, Istvan extremis, which was the moon. So it'll be the Death Guard and the Emperor's Children. They're going to go take out this moon complex. And One thing Garrow... I want to touch on here is that he it talks about how he sees the Mournival, um, but he can tell something's awry with the Mournival. So if you remember back in Galaxy and Flames, that the reason that the entire Mournival was present was to show unity. Um, but what we see is that the disunity shines through very clearly. Right. It's a very it's a very changed legion at this point, and Garrow recognizes that because being from Terra, he's very old. He probably did some of the the he was very there for the beginning parts of the Crusade, so he probably fought alongside a lot of these guys. And it's mentioned later on, he shared a bunker during a siege with Garviel Loken, so he already thought very highly of him. There's a lot of there's a lot of little character interactions there that go on pretty well. We find out that uh, Garrow's going to get tasked for the Istvan Extremis fight. And as he's getting ready to board his ship, um, Mortarion goes off to talk to Angron for a little bit. And while he's waiting for the Primarch to return, he kind of gets um, uh, he kind of gets uh, slagged a little bit by somebody in the crowd. And it turns out to be 
Salt Harvitz, and they they they're old buddies. They've got um, matching van braces so that when they shake hands, it looks like an Aquila between both of their sets of armor. Kind of cool. And, you know, they, they have their character moment. It's pretty cool. We get the sense that um, they're very old friends. They trust each other very much. And, uh, you know, Garrow says something like, I'm going to knock this moon out real quick, and then I'll meet you all in the Sands of Istvan 3. And, <clears throat> you know, they say their goodbyes, and they gear up for the fight at the moon. And uh, let's see. Oh, uh, Tarfitz was at the moon as well. So we're going to get into that. Um, Garrow takes, I think it's just his company at the, uh, the, the big fortress or the, the set of bunkers that they're taking, right? Well, we need to, we need to talk about the getting ready to go. We, we learned some important things, um, about Garrow's command squad, particularly. Um, and the thing that we really learn one is that we, Decius is headstrong. I'm just gonna, okay. I'm just gonna go out real quick. Decius has headstrong character complete that is all you need to know about decius he is headstrong exciting but what we learned about apothecary voyan is that he is actually a member of the lodge and captain garrow finds out that he is a member of the lodge and he doesn't expel him from the company but he's essentially like i'm pissed at you right you're gonna have to work twice as hard to regain my trust basically um, and Voyan is like, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave. Yeah. I'll, I'll go transfer to a different company if you can't trust me anymore. And Garrow's like, no, you're the best apothecary in the company. I have to, you know, hang on to you basically. So, you know, Voyan kind of fesses up to this. I'm not sure what triggers it, but, uh, that all comes out and there's a little he bit gets, of tension. He gets caught and he doesn't know that Garrow is listening. Oh, right, right, because he's talking about it to the rest of the command squad Well, when Garrow walks in. Yeah. Now, there's a little bit of tension uh, as they're descending towards the moon, but that kind of gets forgotten about once the bullets start flying. So, uh, Garrow leads his company into this, uh, this bunker network or fortress or whatever, and they're... Uh, fighting their way through these uh, the war singers and all or the war singer troops and all that, and Garrow makes it into the heart of the complex where he tries to one v one this um, war singer and she bodies him. She lets out this big like psychic uh, sonic blast thing, and it mangles his insides. It cuts off one of his legs and it throws him into a pillar. And Decius is the only one there, so Decius has to rush in and um, get him back on his feet. And right as he gets to pick him up, we see Saul Tarvitz and Eidolon rush by to uh, take on the War Singer. And while they're doing that, um, you know, Saul stops for a minute and you know, you know, tells him to get some rest and stay safe and all that. But Garrow is so stubborn he won't give up. He forces Decius to prop him up on his shoulder. So Decius is, is carrying him through the fight, you know, firing with his bolter. And then Garrow is, you know, firing with his bolter until he runs dry. And then he's like, we need to get close enough so that I can hit with my sword. And so he's wading into this fight with one leg propped up by another guy swinging his sword. And he reaps a bloody tally of these enemy troops, these uh, renegades. And uh, he goes on for so long that he has so much blood loss in this, this poor environment. He almost, he passes out 
and Decius has to like leave him and go find Voyan to come save his life. Well, uh, as we know, Eidolon and Tarvitz kill the Warsinger, and before Voyan can come save Garrow, Fabius Bale shows up, who is the Emperor's Children Apothecary, if we remember. Excuse me, sir, I think you mean Fabulous Bill. Fabio Billy. <laughs> and he uh, he actually saves Garrow's life. And when Voyan shows up, you know, he's got a lot to prove because he let down the captain by being in the lodges. Um, he's kind of an asshole to uh, Fabius. And he basically tells him to fuck off. And Fabius is like, wow, that's what I get for saving his life. See if that happens again. Well, Garrow survives. You know, he's very close to death. He actually, he gets um, hooked up to a big life support system and he gets a new augmentic leg and... Yeah, I want to kind of go into this a bit, um, because I think it's a problem with the book, um, and I want to get your opinion on it. Okay. I think we rely a little bit too much on this little vision quest that happens right here. A little bit annoying to me. Okay, we'll lean into that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Garrow's page, Caleb, uh, it, we kind of suspect him to be a, uh, a follower of the uh, Lactitio Divinitatis. Well... Uh, it turns out Garrow is in like a healing coma. It's something that Astartes can do when they're gravely wounded. And Garrow is uh, on the brink of death, basically. So he's hooked up to life support. He's in a healing coma. You know, they're doing all that they can. But uh, Caleb is sitting by his bedside the whole time, saying the prayers of the Lactitio Divinitatis and praising the emperor and all that. And Garrow starts to have these these visions while he's healing. Uh, well, in... One of them is from a, a woman he's never met. And, you know, we kind of get the feeling, this familiar feeling. We have an idea of who it is. And, um, you know, she's kind of speaking to him directly. It's like, um, you know, pretty soon you're going to have to carry the warning. It's, it's, it's a lot of foreshadowing. It's, it's kind of convenient that, um, that all this is happening. I'm not sure what your primary beef is with it, but we know that Euphrates has done this kind of thing before. It's just a. I don't like massive contrivance that allows the entire rest of the book to happen. So that's fair. Um, so Caleb has uh, kind of, in, in, in a way, imparted his faith to Garrow at this point, which I can see how that that can be a little a little paper thin at times. But um, Garrow's not really sure what any, any of it means because he he's not he's not conscience conscious of what's happening outside he just knows that he's been hearing these words he doesn't know who it was as we find out later it is um it's caleb saying prayers and he's getting a vision from euphrates kilo who as we know is the um the saint aboard the vengeful spirit now gero eventually wakes up and uh captain Timeter is there to kind of razz him a little bit for getting so banged up and he's also there to de- deliver a little bit of bad news to gero the bad news is, is that because of Garrow's wounds, he won't be ready for the fight on Istvan Three, which Garrow's really pissed off about, and he like he forces himself up out of this uh, this medical couch, and he's hobbling around on this new augmentic leg, uh, mechanical leg for those of you who don't know what the augmentic means. Um, he grabs his sword and he basically runs up to. Uh, um, Mortarion is off the ship at this point, so he goes to First Captain Typhon, and he's like, look, man, this is bullshit. I can walk. I can I can go down there and fight. I wouldn't ask anyone else to do this. It has to be me. And Typhon is just like, that's not going to happen. 
um, I'm sorry. And Grugor's there, and you know, Grugor is being kind of like the classic foil. He's like, "Yeah, man, you're too, you're too hurt. It sucks, but you know, fuck you, dude. You're not gonna get to go have fun, but I am." Yeah, Ty- and that's Typhon, Typhon is Typhon's being like uncharacteristically nice, uh, especially right. since we've seen him like be pretty much a dick in previous parts of the book. But he's so being Typhon... like un- Yeah, he's uncharacteristically kind about Garrow's injury. Typhon, you know, Grugor's there, you know, busting his chops like, you're not going to get to go down and get all the glory, but I am. And that's when Typhon says, look, you both have different orders. You're both being tasked to the ship Eisenstein. And Grugor's pissed about this because now he doesn't get to go to the planet and have fun. And um, Garrow's just kind of like, well, I guess if them's the orders. Uh, So he preps his company. Grugor preps his company. And they make it, way it's for not him. their companies, uh, it's their oh, command right. squads. Well, there's there is a company element because towards the end of the story, there are 70 space for yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of guys, um, right. but it's not the entire company. So, there's there's a fair amount there. So, uh, let's see, Garrow takes several of his men, they're on board, they're uh, Storm uh, Stormbird. And Grulgor's guys are on theirs. But they notice when they touch down on board the Eisenstein, there's a there's another ship with them. There's another Stormbird that's like maybe carrying components or gear. And as they're disembarking, Garrow uh, turns to his page Caleb and says, I want you to figure out what is on that ship and report back to me immediately. So Caleb kind of goes into stealth mode and sneaks around for a little bit. And then while he's doing that, we're kind of introduced to... Uh, the um, the crew of the Eisenstein. There's a shipmaster. There's a first mate. There's um, mention of the navigator. Um, they don't mention the astropaths, but we'll get into that later. Now they set about their picket duties because that's what they've been assigned to. Help me break this down a little bit, but I I get confused with the the order of operations here. What will happen? Yeah. First? So so Grugor says I'm going to tour the ship. Um, and Garrow says, okay, I'm going to go to the bridge. So Grugor takes off um, to tour the ship, and Garrow takes off to head to the bridge. So they head to the bridge. He kind of gets um, introduced to the bridge crew. Um, he notices that like on the plaque of the Eisensteins, uh, like, la- uh, I can't remember what they call it, but like their launch plaque, oh, their, their the, founding. The, um, yeah, it's like the launch date or whatever. Yeah, but he realizes, oh, the Eisenstein went to space the same year I became in the Stardies, which, you know, kind of cool. A little yeah. uh, bit of character there, too. I like those little little lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so they they talk about, okay, well, our job is if anybody, the, uh, if anybody tries to squirt from the planet, we're going to blow them out of the sky. But then they get new orders from the War Master to take a lo- lower orbit. And Garrow doesn't know naval tactics, but he knows naval tactics to know well enough. Well, we're not going to be able to do our job from this level. We're not going to have enough time to intercept. Right. It's it's really curious that they're that they're moving into such a low orbit. And about that time, you know, we've we've gotten some perspective of Caleb. Caleb uh, is hiding down in the um, the uh, the gunnery bays, and he realizes that uh, the cargo on that. Uh, miscellaneous dropship was carrying the life eater virus. And he almost gets caught by uh, one of Grugor's men. 
but Voyan is there and saves him because Voyan is suspicious as well, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. And as I've mentioned, Voyan feels like he's got a lot to make up for here. Now, um, Voyan sees this too, uh, gets Caleb out of there, and Caleb goes to warn Garrow. And Voyan is there to corroborate the evidence, basically. About this time, is this when Tarvitz flies by? Yep, this is exactly when that happens. So right when Caleb is, is uh, you know, given his report... Um, no, it's right before. Right before Caleb comes in. Oh, okay, so the the ship is hailed that a renegade Thunderhawk is flying through their, uh, their uh, patrol space. And, you know, before... Uh, before they can issue any orders to blow it out of the sky, they get hailed by, or no, uh, Garrow hails the Thunderhawk to figure out what's going on, and it's Sol Tarvitz. Well, we all, we know they're old buddies, and Garrow's like, dude, you gotta tell me what the hell's going on here, I'm gonna have to blow you out of the sky. And Tarvitz is like, look man, you have to believe me that, you know, they're gonna virus bomb all the, all the loyal men down on the planet, you know, everybody that made Planetfall is going to die. And Garrow's like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, there's no way. And um, it's very stressful, and it comes right down to the wire, where uh, Tarvitz's Thunderhawk is almost shut down, shot down by the pursuing fighters when Garrow takes the gunnery station himself and shoots down the pers- pursuit fighters, you know, kind of, you know, uh, on the edge of a knife. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. Yeah, that's that's one thing I really want to praise the the book for, and this is not the only place that it happens, but like James Swallow does a really good job of you feel the intensity yeah, of all a, of these situations on this bridge. This is a really tense story. Yeah, I'm I'm big into historicals, as you know. I'm a big historical thing that I'm a fan of is naval combat, like Napoleonic Age of Sail type naval combat. And this is like this almost feels like a book like that. Um, just from the way that it's written, I, I, I would be curious, I don't know, but I'd be curious if that's something he took inspiration from for this book. Yeah, that, that'd be really interesting to know. I wonder if he's, um, made any statements on it. I, I'd have to look that up, but he's, he's a really good writer. He did uh, a lot of the blood angels books and he did, does, um, uh, I know he does the, a couple of the 30 K blood angels books as well. So he's pretty good at writing them anyway. Um, so Garrow believes him, believes Tarvitz, and shoots down the pursuit fighters. And in all the um, the, the backwash and the, the readings, it's really easy to spoof the, the Thunderhawk being shot down too, but it actually gets away. And we know that Tarvitz makes Planetfall and warns everybody down there. And then Caleb comes in and corroborates what Tarvitz has said. So Garrow is like, oh, fuck, we've, we've got to go do something about this. And Decius is there the whole time being like, we can't just disobey orders. We can't. We if we're gonna bombard the planet, we gotta bombard the fucking planet. And Garrow's like, "You shut your mouth. If this is, you know, if this is um, dishonorable, then we're not gonna do it." Basically, and you know, leaves him on the bridge. So I think Voyan and Garrow uh, and a couple other dudes go down to uh, the gunnery bays and start kind of pressing Grugor about what's happening. Grugor's down there with several of his men. He's got like a squad and a half with him, I think. And then it's just like three or four guys on Garrow's team. And uh, during the midst of all this, the the fighting eventually starts. 
um, Garrow's like, you know, honor demands that I, I not let you get away with this. Yeah, Grugor basically Grugor basically confirms uh, Saul's story even further of being like, yo, fuck the Emperor, we're turning against him. Right, the, the Emperor abandoned us, we're, we're going rogue. And um, I think Grugor at this point basically confirms that um, the, the only reasons that Garrow wasn't sent down to the planet was because of his injury, and because Mortarian thought that he could turn Garrow and that Garrow was so influential with inside inside the Legion, it would make it easier to turn more people. So if you get Garrow, you get a hundred other guys, and that makes it worth it. But Grugor basically says, you know, I think that the Primarch's wrong for this. He never should have trusted you. You know, uh, Ty- Typhon is on my side. You know, we should have uh, sent you down to the plan, injury or not. Yeah, he uh, makes it very clear that, like, Typhon is in agreement, which we already saw that. Um, in, a, in an earlier scene but the fighting breaks out and it talks about and i really love again a lot of praise for this book um but i love how it talks about how like they have to fight close quarters combat so that they don't bust open the virus yeah so nobody nobody is rocking a bolter they're all swinging swords power fists uh combat knives all that jazz um but the astartes might be that smart the deck crew, not so much. So Caleb is there, you know, backing up his uh, his master, Garrow, and he gets jumped by some of the deck crew. And right as, you know, in, in the scuffle, uh, Caleb gets knocked around, but one of the deck crew pulls out a snub pistol, or a stub pistol, and uh, Caleb wrestles it away from him and gets it out. And right as he gets up and is looking around for targets, he sees that Grulgor is drawing a bead on Garrow with his bolt pistol. And Caleb shoots the pistol in Grulgor's hand because he knew he wasn't going to be able to kill an Astartes. But he fouls the aim of Grulgor's shot. And the ricochet from Caleb's gun hits one of the Life Eater containers. And there's just like, everybody stops. It's dead silent. And all they hear is the cracking of glass and the of something escaping. And Gero and his crew book it right away. And before Caleb can get out of there, he gets shot by Grulgor. While he's, uh, right as he's being overtaken by the life eater virus. Gero, Voyan, and a couple other guys get out of there just in time. And uh, Grulgor's second in command goes to slide underneath the uh, the airlock door for the containment breach and gets cut in half. So there's just, he's kind of been like this asshole side character the whole time, but he gets exactly what's coming to him right. You know, it's just desserts. It's hilarious. Well, it's not hilarious. It's really morbid, but it's it's um, it's you know really what the guy deserves. So uh, Gero gets out of there. He um, orders that the uh, all the gunnery bays be purged, so they open them up to they vent them to space. And the life eaters, the life eater virus can't uh, maintain itself without an atmosphere, so it dies out right away. They leave the containers sealed and go back up to the bridge. Really importantly, um, one of the things Caleb does is he tells oh, Garrow, yeah. like you are of purpose, um, you have a higher purpose in this fight, right? which really sticks with Garrow. So right, right as Caleb is Caleb's dying words, he tells Garrow, you are of purpose right as the doors are closing. 
and Caleb gets left in the um, left in the gunnery cha- uh, gunnery compartment while everybody else gets out. So he kind of sacrificed himself to get everybody else out on time. It's a pretty heroic moment for this uh, this little mortal dude. Now back up on the bridge, there's another problem. So this this is around around the time. The, uh, the orbital bombardment is going off, and uh, the life eater virus is, is killing all the loyalists. And we get a perspective down there of Captain Temeter and uh, Huron Fowl, who, um, you know, they the two of them barely get enough uh, Death Guard into the Western trenches and bunkers in time to save him. Unfortunately, Huron Fowl says, uh, you know, my, the, the virus isn't going to get through my armor. You need to go. I'll make sure everybody else gets in. But Captain Temeter wouldn't do it. He was saying, nope, I'm going to be the last in. I know you'll be fine, but I have to be the last in. Well, the life eater virus gets to him. And Huron Fowl says, you know, this this wasn't the Estevanians. This was our own people. You know that. And He also, he also calls Temeter an idiot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Temeter wouldn't go. He's like, you idiot. So... Uh, Huron Fowl like, you can't, you can't mouth off to me. I'm a captain, and Huron Fowl's just like veterans' that, prerogative. That's <laughs> my favorite line, veterans' prerogative. <laughs> and um, you know, Huron Fowl is basically carrying him through these uh, these um, death clouds while everybody else is in safety. And Huron Fowl says, you know, we know this was the War Master; that it had to have been him. Only he could have done this. And Temeter's like basically nods in agreement because he's melting from the inside out. And then he notices Huron Fowl has a crack in his armor case and he's being eaten alive too. And Huron Fowl's last words are, we deny you this victory. We choose our own death. And he overrides the, uh, all the safety measures in his uh, power plant on his dreadnought sarcophagus and there's like a big nuclear explosion in the middle of the trenches. And Huron Fowl basically denies um, two deaths to the, the War Master. So this is one of the things I really love about this is um, so we they don't confirm, but we can assume pretty strongly that Huron Fowl is a contemptor class dreadnought. And for for our gamers out there in the Horus Heresy tabletop game, all contemptor dreadnoughts always explode when they die. <laughs> so this is just him being like, fuck you. And I, just, I, I love that little segue from the books to the game of all contemptor dreadnoughts explode when they die. So he manually explodes. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, I'm, I'm not going alone. You idiots were close enough to get in melee range. He has, I think that's a pretty strong character moment. I like seeing that. I like Huron Fowl. I wish we had gotten more of him. Oh, man. Here, he's he's very limited character who's just awesome. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so, oh, so we talked a little bit in the last episode who our favorite Dreadnoughts were. And I said Huron Fowl, and I think he's pretty cool. But if we can pick 40k Dreadnoughts, I'm actually going to go with Atolicus from the Iron Snakes. He's such an asshole. That's not. That's, no, that's not fair. That's not fair. You pick. You pick Bjorn. Bjorn becomes a dreadnought in 30k. Also, we're it's kind of bullshit. It's kind of <laughs> bullshit. Anyway, okay. So back aboard the Eisenstein, Garrow basically has to lie and say that they had a weapons malfunction and were not able to deploy the life eater. Um, the second in command aboard the ship. The, uh, the the crew the ship crew not the Astartes 
Um, she actually uses Grilgor's command seal to forge um, a report and send it to Typhon. So Typhon doesn't think that Grilgor's been fucking murdered right away. And about this time, there's another problem on the bridge because another Thunderhawk is passing by their ship. Garrow hails them, and it turns out to be Captain uh, Yakton Cruz. And Yakton Cruz real, is... Real looking... quick, before we get into Yakton Cruz, um, there's a really good arc where Decius is, like, talking about how, well, how do we know that we're the right ones, and, like, we should be following what the Primarch's orders are, and... Garrow just basically drags him to the viewing port and makes him watch Estevan get virus bombed. And he's like, right. fucking tell me that we're not in the right. And Desi's is like, I will shut up now. Yeah, so he he is a little uh, apprehensive of his captain's orders, but Garrow makes a pretty convincing case. Now, uh, Yachtin Cruz is hailing the Eisenstein, looking for safe harbor. And... Um, you know, Garrow kind of gets this feeling, this familiar feeling, like the you know, there's something about the woman on board that you know I should let let them come. And there's the exchange where there's the little exchange where Yakton Cruz is like, "I am I'm a uh, a Luna Wolf," and Garrow's like, "You mean you're not a son of Horus?" And Yakton Cruz says, "I can no longer be a part of what the War Master is doing," and that really cements their understanding of what's going on here now. The, um, you know, they land and it's Yachtin Cruz, it is Kirill Sinderman, Euphrates Kila, and Mercedes Allerton. Those are the only ones that made it off the Vengeful Spirit. Um, they they kind of lie low for a little bit. There's the, the virus bombing and the, the firestorm. And while all that's going on, the Eisenstein slowly starts to drift out of alignment with the rest of the fleet. No one really notices this, but there's a crewman. It is the chief comms officer. They they do send like a communique saying that they're having a reactor issue, so that it, it kind of covers them dropping back as well. Right. And also, so, yes, get get to the Vox officer who is a twat. Yes, the Vox officer is the most selfish piece of shit in the whole story. Because He's also the fucking stupidest guy in the story. Oh yeah, he's dumb as fuck. <laughs> So never do this if you are if, if, if you're like part of a, a hostage situation or anything like this, um, don't do what this idiot does. So the the Vox officer, you get a little perspective from him. He's like he's very resentful of what's going on because he knows basically he's going rogue from the war master. And he's he's worked himself up from like a regular ensign or whatever up into this you know, chief comms officer, and he wants his own ship someday. He wants to get promoted. And that's never going to happen if he gets killed disobeying orders. So he radios First Captain Typhon on his flagship, the Terminus Est. The Terminus Est is a pretty interesting battleship because it's not a standard, uh, it's not a standard template construction ship like the, uh, the battle barges or the strike cruisers or even the Gloriana ships. It is a very unique vessel. Very ponderous. It's got like a big forward lance. It's got awesome broadsides. Um, it's not very maneuverable, though. So they kind of, um, Garrow and the ship's crew kind of uh, figure that into their plans if they got to cut and run. So Moss radios the Terminus Est and says, uh, Grogor is dead. Garrow is rebelling. They're trying to escape and um, 
and warn everyone. And um, as the Eisenstein is drifting out of alignment, the Terminus Est turns and looks right at him. And Garrow goes, oh, fuck. And um, the, the, the ship's crew is speculating. You know, they're, they're powering up their engines, getting ready to go. Speculating, you're like, what tipped them off? How do they know? And Garrow, like, charges right over to the comm station and grabs Moss and goes, what did you do? Moss goes, I won't, I, I'm not, I'm not going to let you get away with this. They're going to promote me for turning you in. Yeah. No, it's, it is so dumb. No, that's because not, just, that, no, the Terminus S has big guns on it. He's just going to fucking kill everybody. What? You just watched a virus bomb an entire planet. You think they're going to blink twice about blowing up a frigate? <laughs> yeah. He, fuck that. <laughs> I know, I know what decision I'd make. Oh so, my God. It, it, it's it's frustrating to me because it's a contrivance, right? They needed some action for this thing to get for him to get. They chased. needed Typhon to get to get tipped off because he might not have noticed on his own. It's a contrivance, but also this guy is definitely stupid enough to do it. So like, it's a pretty well set up contrivance. I've I've met people like this in real life. Oh my god, he's such an idiot. He's like, well, I'm going to become a captain. They're like, they're going to blow the ship up, and you're not going to live. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to die in space. Um, anyway, well, Garrow fucking murders him, which is oh, awesome. Yeah, straight murks him right there in front of the crew. Which I is is it's a pretty awesome moment because like you don't expect that from this character. You're like, oh, Garrow, oh, he's yeah. like the good guy, so he's not. No, he's like, nope, he's, you he's fucked so... us. I'm going to murder you. <laughs> he's so straight up and down. He'd like push for a court martial or something. Nope. Mercs him right there on the spot. Summary execution. So the Eisenstein fucking books it. They've got to get to the Mandeville point so they can translate out of the system. But to do that, they have to escape the Terminus Est first. Well, to do that, they do a little slingshot maneuver around the moon which the Terminus Est isn't quite nimble enough to accomplish. Now, they talk a little bit about how the Eisenstein is pushed to its very limits. They're, they're taking this high-G maneuver around the moon, and there are, like, rivets popping out of the walls. You know, shit's going haywire. Consoles are exploding. The, the gravitational pull is, is almost killing people. And the Terminus Est is right on their heels. It's a big, slow ship, but it's, it's deadly nonetheless. And Typhon, on his perspective, he's pushing it to its very limits as well. So much so that they almost get dragged down in the moon's, moon's gravity well. They, they pull out just in time, but not before a couple of parting shots that severely cripple the Eisenstein. They lose all their astropaths, so they cannot send or receive messages. Their um, uh, power plant is damaged, so the Geller fields will not activate. A little, about, a little bit about the Geller fields... They'll activate, but they won't stabilize. The Geller fields are what protects a ship when it is traveling through the warp. It's like kind of a, a um, I'm not sure what the, the pseudoscience is behind it, but it, it's a big bubble around the ship that protects you against all the the nasty, psychic, warpy shit inside the uh, this other dimension. Now, before they're able to jump into the warp, um, they get uh, a message from the navigator who's really nervous about going because the warp is so turbulent right now and basically shrouded in darkness. Um, he says he'll still do it because he lives for the thrill of the jump. 
the captain says, we can do it, but we're having problems with the Geller fields. The Geller fields won't stabilize. They're kind of flickering in and out. They're kind of rippling. They're not stable at all. And Garrow is like, Garrow and uh, Yakton Cruz are both like, we got to go. It's, it's do or die. If we stay here, we are going to die. If we make it to the warp, who knows? So they barely make it to the Mandeville point before getting uh, raked again with another broadside. Yeah, it, it kind of drives me nuts a little bit because they they talk about they're like, oh, we can't jump into the warp uh, because the Geller fields won't. And like they have a good point. Um, if you want to see what a ship coming in and out of the warp looks like without the Geller fields, it's not actually um, a prequel, but it's a spiritual successor. I think the, the creators even actually said that, but the movie Event Horizon is um it's about an interstellar travel that goes awry um but basically everyone goes completely insane and starts murdering each other and like it's even uh like just being on the ship after this has been completed like you weren't part of the the crew that made the jump it's it is really bad to not have a geller field in the warp is the point i'm trying to make right so but the that being said they do not have a fucking choice. Yeah, it's do or die. They they stay here and die, or they go and risk it for the biscuit. And it's a pretty big biscuit that they're going to be risking it for. Cut their their biscuit so to lame. risk it ratio is quite high. Cut that. That's so fucking lame. Um, anyway, so just before they hit the warp, the, the Geller Fields barely stabilize enough to, to get going. They make it into the warp, and as soon as they hit the warp currents, they're getting thrown everywhere. It's this really tumultuous journey. You know, they're not sure, you know, what direction they're going, how accurate they're being, if they're even pointed towards Terra, because they're trying to get this warning to the Emperor. Now, we get a very interesting perspective here, something that I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else. A massive consciousness inside the warp notices something. And it thinks to itself, oh, this requires only the most delicate touch. And I'm going to have a lot of fun with this. And it barely strokes the ethereal tendrils of the warp near the Eisenstein. And then it cuts to the crew perspective of the ship. And some of the Astartes in the the lower decks are... uh, radioing in saying we've got borders we've got borders somebody somebody's on board the ship and Garrow's like no one was you know they never launched boarding pods nobody could have gotten on board and uh all the communications go out and Garrow's like oh fuck he so he gathers up his command squad Decius and Solon and leaves Yakton Cruz uh in command of the bridge Garrow and his boys go down to the decks and they start seeing these corpulent, shambling figures with, like, guts hanging out. They smell putrid. They're nasty and disgusting. And these are oddly reminiscent of some of the nasty boys we saw on uh, the moon of... Davin. Davin, right, the moon of Davin. So these are plague bearers or um, uh, plague boys of Nurgle. And... They are giving the crew a hell of a time. Well, Garrow and his guys uh, cut their way through a fair few until they finally make it back to the gunnery decks. And they know there's something in there because they can hear noises or, you know, they're getting reports or whatever. Real quick, um, 
before they materialize, this navigator comes screaming out of the navigator's deck oh, yeah. and grabs Garo, and she transmits this vision to them where Garo essentially sees himself as a plague marine, and he sees everyone else as a plague marine, and he sees Mortarian as a demon prince who's saying, you know, come join us, this is what's going to happen. Um, so it's a really, it's a, it's a pretty big foreshadow. Uh, but then that woman impales herself on his sword, Libertas, yeah. which is the most fucking metal name for a sword. Yeah, I know, but, right? That's why I call it his kick-ass sword. Yeah. But then they so, head down to the gunnery decks after fighting off those dudes. Right. So they fight their way through down to the gunnery decks, and they go to investigate that because they know there's something down there now. And when they open the door, it is an exact parody of... Um, or a exact copy, basically, of what the vision Garrow just had. So Grulgor and all his men have been reanimated as plague marines. They're all standing up, and you know Grulgor's talking shit, and uh, uh, Garrow looks down, and Caleb is reanimated too, and he's you know down there like clawing at his armor, saying "Master, Master, Master." And Garrow has to grant him peace a second time and cuts his head off that time. Now, there's a pretty big scrap here between the um, uh, the mutant Astartes now and the Loyalist Death Guard. And, you know, Garrow gets tied up fighting off a bunch of uh, just regular Plague Marines. And Decius actually goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the, the, the uh, Plague Thing Rulgore. And Grulgor um, stabs him in the uh, side, I think, and then also stabs him in the arm with his plague knife. And Decius sees, like, this horrible rotting stuff coming up his arm and cuts off his arm with his chainsaw. And, you know, basically trying to, to get the plague away from him. And that basically takes Decius out of the fight. I think... Um, Voyan is there to stabilize him there at the moment, but um, at that time, uh, Garrow gets in toe-to-toe -to -toe with Grulgor. They they duke it out for a while, you know, Grulgor is saying, like, you know, you really need to, um, you really need to join us, this is inevitable, this is this is the, the end of all things, and they're just getting, the, the Loyalists are getting overwhelmed in this fight because Plague Bearers just keep spawning in. And uh, Garrow's like, well, the only the only um, contributing factor I can think of is because the uh, Gellerfields won't stabilize. Um, maybe we should just jump or uh, drop out of the war. So he voxes up to the command bridge and says, you know, emergency translation, get us out of the warp right now. And they're like, we can't we can't do it right now because if we do, it'll you know, damage the ship. It'll probably kill the navigator from the psychic black backlash. Um, you know, it's not a good idea. And Garrow basically overrules everyone and says, I'm fucking ordering you get us out of the warp right now. And so there's like an emergency stop. They, they uh, get dumped out of the warp pretty unceremoniously. They go tumbling on for a while, but as soon as they drop out of the warp, all of these animated corpses and plague bearers dissolve. And Gruelgor's like, no, and, evaporates and as he does as they're leaving the warp Garrow sees like this this shadowy smoky soul looking thing get ripped out of Krogor's body back into the warp 
I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, fight with Denizens of the Warp. It's, it's pretty interesting to me. We'll see something like that again later on. Yeah, not, I, not I agree. Book, it's it's a well-done action scene again. And it kind of like him seeing that, it, it kind of pushes him further down the path that he's on. He's like, yeah, there's, there's some consciousness beyond our mortal understanding. So, you know, what, what kind of weapon do we need to combat that? Because our, our bolters and chainswords did nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, there's uh, a little bit of a, um, there's a couple of scenes. It's a little bit of a montage kind of thing. It's like they're kind of taking stock of what they, what resources they have, what crew is left, what the ship can do. Um, the navigator was killed due to the psychic backlash of being dumped out of the warp like that. So they can no longer travel throughout the warp. They stay still warp capable, but they cannot navigate. So if they went into the warp, they just get tossed around. They could wind up anywhere. They don't really have um, like food and water to do like a long sublight journey, and the tricky part is is that they're actually they actually land in a uncharted uh, uncharted piece of space, so they're not likely to run into any other ships where they're at. So it's looking pretty bleak, and this is where Garo um, Garo goes through Caleb's personal effects and he finds his Lecticio Divinitatis pamphlet and he starts reading it and he's like I don't know if I agree with all this religious nonsense you know I was raised a, a good secular boy and all that and there are no gods there's just the imperial truth but after all this uh, warp fuckery and you know the dead rising again and all that he he really sits down and looks at this book a little more thoroughly and he has this point where he actually discovers faith. And maybe, Brandon, you'll uh, you'll want to touch on this a little more, but he has like a full, he's in his personal quarters, he has a full-on breakdown, just begging for someone to help him. And he's like, I- I'm not strong enough for this, I can't do this alone, you have to help me. And he doesn't realize it, but he's been praying to the Emperor this whole time now. Yeah, he, he kind of like, we kind of see this throughout the book, of he just starts the steps believing that the emperor is a divine being it starts with caleb being a devout follower of the lecticio divinitatis and then as euphrates comes onto the ship and then you know pushes him and pushes him more um he just continues this journey to the point where now he's been confronted with otherworldly horrors um from the warp and some visions and all of this stuff and he's just like i'm just a guy and i i need i need to have faith in something so he decides okay i'm gonna do this lecticio divinitatis thing um he starts talking to euphrates a lot and they start holding services in the eisenstein and it's kind of a thing where everybody knows it's going on and they're like it's not really supposed to happen but fuck it we're out in the middle of nowhere it's it's like the worst kept secret since I don't know. Um, Fulgrim. <laughs> so now Garo, like like we said, that they've been holding services, but nobody's been really talking about it until Garo just shows up at one. And at first, the uh, the worshippers are pretty nervous because in the past, anytime Astartes have shown up to one of these, it's been with um, 
you know, bolters and chain swords to break it up and destroy the followers, destroy their following, basically. Now, uh, Garo is like, no, just talk to me for a minute. What are you doing here? What does all this mean? And Carol, Carol Sinderman is there and, and, you know, kind of comforts him a little bit, gives him a little bit more to think on. And I think at this point, Garrow's pretty well sold. You know, he's like, he really believes that the Emperor protects. And Carol Sinderman says something along the lines of like, look, you know what you need to do. There's only one thing to do. And we know that, we know that whatever you do, you'll have our support, basically. Or, you know, the Emperor is going to guide you in whatever you do. And Garrow's like, okay, well, I guess that kind of decides it. And he goes up to the bridge and orders the captain to start charging up the warp engines. And everybody, Decius especially, is like, there is no fucking way we can go back into the warp. It's too dangerous. We don't have a navigator. If we go into the warp, we are going to die. Garo says, shut up and follow my orders. He turns to the uh, the ship captain and says, once they're fully charged, prime them for jettison and transfer all power to engines and void shields and get us as far away as possible. And the, the ship captain's like, well, that's going to cause a huge warp explosion. Like, I don't know what that's going to accomplish. You're just going to further... Um, kind of hamstring our, our capabilities, but whatever, you're in charge. So they do this little maneuver where they get booking it at sublight as uh, as quick as they can. Oh no, Decius pulls a fucking pistol. Or no, oh it shit, yeah, I forgot about that. So No, it's Voyan. Decius Voyan. is in a Decius is in a um, Oh right. So Decius um, cube at this point. Decius was wounded by Grilgor's plague knife during the fight in the gunnery chamber and has been on life support in a sealed con- uh, sealed chamber this entire time. Voyan is the one being the naysayer this time. So Voyan is so against this maneuver, he pulls a pistol on Garrow and almost uh, almost opens fire on a superior officer. Well, uh, Garrow and some of the other crew talk him down and basically send him away, which is pretty lenient, but... I think Garrow is again of a mind that um, Decius is going to die if they don't have an apothecary. And that's the only reason Garrow's keeping him around at this point. Yep. So they do this little maneuver where they get booking it at sublight speed. And then as they're traveling, they pull away and jettison the fully charged warp engines with all the safety measures uh, overridden and disengaged. And what that does is it causes two separate explosions. It causes a big explosion in the warp. It displaces all the warp matter or whatever. And it causes like a big energy spike in real space. So anyone in real space would be able to see it. And anyone in the warp would see like a big pop and then empty spot basically. And that is their saving grace. Yeah, It's basically the galaxy's biggest emergency flare that lasts for a split second yep so um life support is taken to a minimum they're conserving uh resources as much as they can the crew has been consolidated into like the inner sanctums the uh, the 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 more in uh interior parts of the ship to conserve resources yeah so they uh they kind of shut down life support systems to the uh to the ship 
And but then, you know, on their very limited sensor array uh, for the for the parts of the ship that they do have life support, they they recognize that a fleet has translated out of the warp into real space. And that's all they can tell. They can't right. tell who what this fleet is, who it is, um, whatever it may be. What they can tell is there's a bunch of ships and one of them is fucking massive, uh, like the size of a planet. So they get ready um, for for these guys are are gonna come in at some point, um, and so they're waiting to be boarded and to see because they they think it's Horus. Um, they're like Horus has tracked us down. He's gonna come kill us. Um, but they're like, well, you know what? We'll uh, we'll either make our last stand here or maybe it'll be rescuers. And they're sitting there waiting for for their to be boarded and one of the uh, the death guard sergeants is like hey we just got a weird reading of like an energy spike um and then they're like is it an incoming vox signal they're like no and garrow's like hold on i recognize this signal we've got incoming and there's a teleportation onto the eisenstein um from a bunch of space marines with bolters raised and they're demanding to know who's in charge. And Garrow basically loses it at this point and is like, you're on my fucking ship. You'll tell me who you are before I tell you who I am. And they kind of like lower their bolters. And he hears this voice from behind them that says, uh, oh, where are my manners? Like, I apologize. Uh, my name is Rogel Dork of the Imperial Fists. <laughs> I'm the biggest clown in the Imperium. But I'm here now, and that's an exact quote. Wow! Yeah, um, you didn't paraphrase one bit. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> very, very honest. Yeah, I'm sure that your Iron Warrior bias had nothing to do with that. Well, I don't know what you're well, speaking of. So, as it turns out, it's actually Rogaldorn. the The big spaceship it's pronounced Rogaldork. The big spaceship reading is from the Phalanx, which is a asteroid turned into a flying fortress by Rogaldorn himself. It was originally intended to be a gift to the Emperor, but the Emperor's like, dude, I got a ton of warships. Keep that for yourself. Your Legion's going to do great with it. Um, now, Rogaldorn says, look, you'll have Sanctuary. Tell me what you're doing out here. Like, I see that your, your vessel is, is completely ruined. Um, come aboard. Come aboard. The Phalanx will take care of you. And they have a little powwow where Garrow just spills the beans. They're in this little conference room. And um, he he said, you know, he starts off with, um, you know, we're, we're on our way to a compliance mission or a, um, you know, we're going to go crush this rebellion at Istvan. And while that happened, the fleet dropped virus bombs on all the loyalist troops down there. You know, they killed thousands of people and then they ignited the vapors and there's a big fire firestorm. And everybody on Istvan 3 died. And Rogaldorn says, how dumb do you think I am? I don't believe any of this. Horus would never, you know, the, the security would never be so lax that Horus would let something like this would happen. And that's when Garrow almost loses his life. Because Garrow says, it wasn't because the Warmaster wasn't paying attention. It's because they were the Warmaster's order. And Rogaldorn almost decapitates Garrow with a savage backhand. It nearly breaks his neck. 
Ro- Rogaldor keeps his pimp hand strong. Yeah, you can't deny him that. I mean, until he loses it, basically. Yeah, what a bitch. Now, that's when Yakton Cruz steps up and says, Look, my lord, we know that there is there's some merit to this because if you didn't believe any any bit of this, you would have just killed him, but we both know you pulled that punch. And Rogaldorn says, Well, you've got to have some kind of proof of this. You know, show me or I'm going to have to kill all of you. And that's when Mercedes Oliton steps up, and she is a remembrancer with a cranial implant that turns her eyes into cameras. And she basically, it's not like making a movie, it's not like recording something. You're literally looking at her perceived memories. And so she plays back the footage of the remembrancers watching the virus bombing, and then the, the viewing gallery being annihilated by the Astartes. So all the remembrancers being killed by Horus. And there's some very good footage of Horus um, saying, you know, this is this is the war that you forced us to fight and this is how we do it. You don't get to complain about it now. And then killing all the remembrancers. And Rogaldorn is shaken to his core by this because who would have thought that Horus would betray anyone like this? Well, Rogaldorn basically orders everyone away he allows Garrow and Cruz to live. He allows the Remembrancers to live. He says the crew of the Eisenstein will be reassigned or whatever. It's kind of thrown away. I don't think we ever see them again. But Rogaldorn, um, which, which is kind of unfortunate because the the crew you kind of like really like learn to like the crew throughout the course yeah. of the book, and then they're just kind of written out. Right. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we will see that later on. I don't know. Um. But Rogaldorn kind of um, uh, secludes himself in his fortress of solitude, and you know he's got um, he's going to have to go. It's his fortress of dorkitude. Whatever. <clears throat> he um, he shuts himself away, and I think later on there's a line like the noises coming from the Primarch's chambers were like terrifying because he was, you know, having such a rage and uh, we're not really sure what goes on there, but Dorn was pissed uh, and, and pretty heartbroken over, over the whole, whole ordeal. He comes out eventually like a few hours later and he orders the Eisenstein scuttled. The phalanx is going to return to Terra this is now his mission to take word to the Emperor. And the rest of the fleet is going to Istvan to um, figure out what's going on there to, to hold Horus accountable. And that is that is like 99.9% of the Imperial Fists. And what we find out here is that the, the entirety of the Imperial Fists were recalled to Terra on the uh, specific orders of the Emperor to go prepare for something, basically. So the Emperor knows something's up. And the only reason the Imperial Fist fist showed up now was because they were also uh, lost in the warp due to the turbulent warp storms. But the the big warp engine explosion cleared just enough area for them to get their bearings again and translate safely into real space. And that's when they found the Eisenstein. So, uh, first Captain Sigismund is supposed to 
lead the fleet onto um, counter Horus. Which I don't know what goes on. There's some kind of character shuffle later on. Because later on we find out that it's Alexis Pollock, Captain Alexis Pollock, that takes that fleet onwards. And Sigismund is back on Terra with Dorn in later stories. So I think that's that's just a little snafu of the writing. It, yeah, it's not super clear. Well, and spoilers, I guess, but like they never make it to Istvan. Right. So I, I'm hoping that that's somewhere in the books because it's it, not it super is. There's, clear. There's a short story um, with uh, Alexis Pollock where we get some of that, and then we find out where Alexis Pollock winds up. Okay. Um, we'll we'll get into that in another story, but there there is some um, character development there. So the the fleet splits off from the phalanx. The phalanx phalanx makes way back for Terra, and it's able to make it back relatively easily. We don't hear from the rest of the Imperial Fist fleet from that point. Now Dorn uh, basically drops everybody off on the moon, and when Garrow's like, "Hey, man." we're trying to take this to the Emperor. We need to get to Terra, not the moon. Dorn is like, are you fucking high? Do you think I'm going to take you to the most important man in all the Imperium? You could be assassins carrying some kind of warp-borne illness that we don't know about yet. Or, you know, because they, they've got Decius with them, who uh, is now on board the Phalanx. They had transferred his medical pod. And even the Imperial Fist uh, apothecaries are like, we don't know what the fuck is going on here. You know, so... It's pretty plausible that Dorne would be like, this is some kind of fucked up super weapon you're trying to hit the Emperor with. We're not taking you anywhere near him. And so they get um, they get deposited on this uh, this fortress on the moon that is actually it is It belongs to this the Silence. Right, so it is garrisoned by the Sisters of Silence, and Amandira Kendall is there. So this is kind of her her stomping ground, so to speak. Now, the, uh, the Death Guard are basically given free reign of the facility. They just can't leave. And they've the Death Guard have kind of been running theoreticals on, like, if we were to escape, how far could we get? What would we do? Um, some of the guys have been... Actually, everybody has been taking um, patrols and watches around Decius because he's still alive. He's suffering a lot. Um, they don't want to leave him alone. They're really worried about their battle brother. Um, Garrow yeah, is and, still and the other the other part of that too is they really don't have anything else to do, right? So they've, because they've kind in of... their theoreticals, they've they're like, how far can we get? And the answer that they come up with is not very fucking far, right? It's like even if we even if we make it out of this fortress and past all the turrets, we're going to lose some people. Maybe we get a ship, and maybe we get into space, and then we're definitely going to get shot down by the phalanx. Yeah. Anyway. You know they're all they're taking their watches on Decius. They're basically doing sparring practice. Garrow has been ra- you know kind of wrestling with his faith, this or newfound faith this whole time, basically praying, meditating, whatever. And that's when um you know he goes and visits Decius from time to time and tries to talk to him, but um, they can't actually get in Decius's chamber now because the 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 plague strain affecting him is so virulent now. They, they can't even go in in like a hazmat suit or anything. That's how deadly it's gotten. It's basically the life eater virus, but 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 contained within this uh, space marine. Garrow is kind of off on his own patrol when we get a final perspective from Decius, 
which is of him laying in this uh, medical couch or this medical suite suffering. And he's like, you know, the emperor's not helping me. I need help. Somebody has to help me. Anyone help me. And he gets this horrible, creeping voice in his head. Like, are you sure you want help? You know, I can save you. And I'll, I'll give you the, you know, the power to, to walk amongst, uh, walk amongst the stars again. And he's like, I'll do anything. Just make the pain stop. And that's when the warp entity rushes into him and he becomes a possessed cow space marine at this point. It, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of that meme uh, where it's like, get away from me, Nurgle. All you bring is disease. And he's like, oh, but I also bring gifts. And they're like, oh, thank you. It's disease. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So... Now the um, the fortress is um, is in chaos. The uh, Voyan and several battle brothers start getting um, like warning signals from the medical area, so they rush over and they find dismembered bodies. the uh, The space marines that were on uh, patrol or you know on Decius watch basically have been mutilated and dismembered and thrown you know, torn to pieces. And there's no sign of what killed them other than whatever it was just tore through Astartes plate like it's paper. And we've seen this before in the Whisperheads. So this is kind of a another reimagining of um, the fight with, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Xavier Jubal. Xavier Jubal. And what was the demon that uh, possessed him? Samus. Uh, Samus. Yeah, Samus. But this is, this is not Samus. Wish? This is the no. Lord of Flies. Yes. So this is a, a new demon name. baddie. Yeah. So the Lord of Flies, who's a, a plague demon of Nurgle. And um, the uh, the Sisters of Silence and the Astartes are having trouble hitting him because he's got this cloak of flies, basically, that's kind of um, fouling incoming fire. And uh, this is when Garrow shows up with Libertas. And um, they're fighting in this... Um, uh, kind of like loading bay area. And the Lord of Flies is basically beating the shit out of everybody. No one can touch him. He throws Amandira Kendall uh, across the across the room, away from the fight, and Giro eventually pushes him back into an airlock and orders the airlock cycled and pushes him back out into space. So uh, Giro and the Lord of Flies, or the Decius thing, are having this kind of big one-on-one and um, it's very much a war of attrition. They're going blow for blow for blow. Garrow's starting to fatigue though because he doesn't have this um, uh, this warp born endurance that the Lord of Flies does, and he he almost gives up. But again, at that point of almost no return, Garrow starts to you know think about the the golden light of the Imperium, the Lactitio Divinitatis of Holy Terra of the emperor himself. And it empowers him for like a couple more, um, you know, vicious swings of his sword. And even though he's like his, his power armor at this point is leaking air. Um, he's taken several gruesome hits. Yet he eventually, uh, cuts this thing to pieces and destroys it. And again, we see as he lands the killing blow, this, um, smoky, apparition thing goes rushing away from the fight as he kills it. So it's, it's like the, the thing, whatever the thing that, um, reanimated 
Brulgore was might have been the same thing animating Decius, and then uh, through faith or whatever, uh, Gero was able to banish it back to the war. Yeah, and then so we get a quick scene with uh, with Malkador, the Sigilite, comes to to Luna. This is our first um, our first introduction to Banana Boys. The um, so Gero's in this. Yeah, um, no, Gero is. Yes, it is. When, when was the first time? Horus's vision quest in False Gods. Oh shit! You're right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. My so, bad. Well, some yeah. custodies are there. We get a really cool um, descriptor of them and what they look like and these these big guardian spears they carry and mm-hmm. how cool they are. Um, and then Malkador shows up and he has a little bit of dialogue with Garo and, you know, Malkador's like, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know any of this is real? And Garo says, I know you have the gift. Look into my heart and see what is true. Mm-hmm. And Melkador's last line in that dialogue is like, the emperor, the emperor does protect more so than you could possibly know. Yeah, and he talks about uh, with Amandira Kendall and Nathaniel Garrow um, how he he's putting together a team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's it's uh, not so much um, like there's. He's not ta- like Amandira Kendall doesn't talk. She has like an interpreter that converts sign language, but she is a sister of silence. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Malkador implies that um, there's an even bigger battle coming down the line and we're going to need the best of the best. And so I've got specific duties for people like you and Amandira Kendall. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of where the book ends. There is uh, we get that, that scene um, and then, it, it cuts, and that's uh, that is the end of Flight of the Eisenstein. Uh, so real quick, let's uh, let's go favorite parts. I really like the tension on the bridge of the Eisenstein as they're making their flight away, because there are several instances where you're like, I don't think they're going to make it. How could they possibly make it? Yeah, I I agree. The tension is so well done in this book. I love it. Yeah, that that's my favorite part as well. Is this actually? It, it feels like a horror book to yep. me, um, it, of all the all the tension and then like the the warp stuff. Right. But it, it's it's well done literary horror. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I really like. Um, uh, they do a very good job of making the the warp threat seem very real. Well, like we've seen it before with uh, J- Xavier Jubal. Um, so like we. I know later on we might feel a little desensitized to it, but we need to keep it in perspective that this is a first for this character, and it's it's something that's very unheard of in this galaxy. So I think that uh, James Swallow did a great job with this book. I, I had so much fun reading it. I know um, uh, one of our listeners, my buddy Delcar, picked it up um, to read it before we talked about it, so I know that people are, are, are already getting into this, and you know, thank you to all of our viewers. We're really appreciative, or listeners, I should say. We're very appreciative of um, uh, everything that, uh, the, all the feedback that we're getting too. So, yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, it's a great, great story. Um, again, that that tension and that horror is really good. Um, I think that the good massively outshines the bad, and the bad for me in this is Decius. Honestly, I don't like him. I don't yeah, care for his he's... character. This this bit at the end where he becomes the Lord of Flies, 
I honestly don't feel like it was necessary for the book. I felt like it was padding. Really? I Yeah, I, I think that you could have had Malkador set cup show up and say, like, hey, you've seen some weird fuck, fucked up shit in the warp. I know that. Um, I want you on this team. I, I think you could have had that, that scene with Malkador. You didn't need this Decius warp action I can, fight. I can see that, but I also think that it really drives home the corruptibility of of um, the Astartes. And it's uh, it kind of showcases that a little bit. And it really kind of drives home the dire threat of you know, the, these warp spawn things coming into reality. So I don't know. Um, I can see it both ways. Um, it doesn't bother me one way or the other. So Yeah, again, it's... I don't know. If we want to talk corruptibility of this, the Astartes, we need to talk Fulgrim, where it's just done better. Fair, okay, fair enough. And that's the next book, so let's plug yeah. that now. Book five is Fulgrim by Graham McNeil. That is Graham McNeil's second novel in the series. Um, it's a great book. I'm looking forward to getting into it. I know you've already started it. I haven't had a chance yet. I'm going to start it Monday, probably. It's This is an awesome book. Um, this is one of the best in, in my opinion of, of the series. And it's, it's also one of the more dense books. So I think that what we're going to do is we're probably going to split that into two episodes. Uh, so be on the lookout for the first half of Fulgrim coming in a couple weeks. And then a couple weeks after that, we'll finish off with the second half. Definitely. And be sure to pick that one up, and we're looking forward to all your feedback for this episode. Be sure to look us up on social media at uh, Twitter at LegionCast18, the Horus Heresy Podcast, Instagram, same handle, and shoot us an email if you've got uh, uh, got any questions at LegionCast at gmail.com. All right, Legion brothers and sisters, uh, we thank you again for joining us here at LegionCast, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.